Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Special episode 6, Italy's part in the Holocaust. As a family, we started out the year 2019 in the best of ways. On the 1st of January, we spent the evening with some of our very dearest friends. Unfortunately, they don't live right around the corner from us, so we don't always get to see them. But they live around 20 minutes away from our city, Reggio Emilia, in a small town called Fossoli, under the larger municipal administration of the town of Carpi, in the province of Modena. Fossoli is very much like other small Italian towns. It has its own church, a supermarket, shops, schools. Fossoli, however, has something that many other similar towns don't, a concentration camp. The camp was created by the Italian government as a prisoner of war camp in 1942 for the British and Commonwealth troops captured in North Africa. With the armistice in September 1943 and the creation of Mussolini's puppet regime, the Italian Social Republic, the camp was used for Jews from the surrounding areas. In 1944, it started to hold political prisoners. On the 19th and 22nd of February 1944, the first two trains full of Jews left the camp headed for their final destination, Auschwitz. Among those on the second train was the writer Primo Levi, author of If This Is a Man. At the moment of my arrival, that is, at the end of January 1944, there were about 150 Italian Jews in the camp, but within a few weeks their number rose to over 600. For the most part, they consisted of entire families captured by the fascists or Nazis through their imprudence or following anonymous reports. A few had given themselves up spontaneously, reduced to desperation by the vagabond life, or because they lacked the means to survive, or to avoid separation from a captured relation, or even, absurdly, to be in conformity with the law. There were also about a hundred Yugoslavian military internees and a few other foreigners who were politically suspect. The arrival of a squad of German SS men should have made even the optimist doubtful, but we still managed to interpret the novelty in various ways, without drawing the most obvious conclusions. Thus, despite everything, the announcement of the deportation caught us all unawares. On February the 20th, Germans had inspected the camp with care and had publicly and loudly upbraided the Italian commissar for the defective organisation of the kitchen service, and for the scarce amount of wood distributed for heating. They even said that an infirmary would soon be opened, but on the morning of the 21st, we learned that on the following day, the Jews would be leaving, all the Jews without exception, even the children, even the old, even the ill. Our destination, nobody knew. We should be prepared for a fortnight of travel. For every person missing at the roll call, ten would be shot. Only a minority of ingenious and deluded souls continued to hope. We others had often spoken with the Polish and the Croat refugees, 
and we knew what departure meant. Over the course of 1944, the camp in Fossoli was taken over by the SS and became the main deportation camp from Italy to the camps of the Reich until it was bombed in that same year. The camp is a very clear reminder of the part that Italy played in the Holocaust. Despite the fact that the Catholic Church had never looked too kindly upon the Italian Jews, the latter didn't do too badly in the pre-fascist period. Italian politician Sidney Sonnino, who had served as Prime Minister for a brief spell in 1906, then again in 1909, had had a Jewish father, and his successor, Luigi Luzzatti, had been fully Jewish. Things didn't even go too badly at the start of the fascist regime, with Jews participating in the March on Rome in 1922 and Guido Jung serving as the finance minister for the Mussolini government from 1932 to 1935. Other Jews serving in Mussolini's government were the Undersecretary of the Interior, Aldo Fensi, and Dante Amanzi, who was the Deputy Chief of Police. Things started to go downhill, however, starting in the 30s for a series of reasons. First of all, after the fascist government had effectively made peace with the church in the Lateran Pacts of 1929, the regime moved closer to Catholic positions and handed teaching back over to the clergy. So, once again, the Jews could be depicted as those who had killed the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Secondly, the 30s saw an increasing attention of Mussolini and his advisers to the question of race, especially with the invasion of Ethiopia, spreading the idea of interracial relations between Italian soldiers and local Ethiopian women. Thirdly, there is the more well-known reason of Mussolini's moving close to Hitler and his violent ideology of anti-Semitism. Finally, there was the issue of Zionism, the international Jewish movement to find a national home for the Jews. Such an international movement that went beyond national borders could not help but clash with fascist nationalism. Despite these developments, as late as 1937, Mussolini was reassuring worried American Jews that their brothers in Italy would be safe. Things came to a head in 1938. It was in this year, particularly on the 13th and 14th of July, the Manifesto of the Italian Racists proclaimed that the Jews were not part of the Italian race, whatever the Italian race may be. Just a few days later, the procedure for a special census was set up at the Ministry of the Interior. The results which came out on the 22nd of August, revealed that there were 58,412 people in Italy with at least one Jewish parent. September 1938 brought a flurry of decrees, for example banning Jews from teaching and expelling foreign Jews from the country. November brought a ban on marriage between Jewish Italians and those of Aryan race. 
as the weeks passed, the Jews were prohibited from military service, and any work sector having to do with the defence of the state. Owning land and buildings beyond a certain size was also prohibited, as well as having Aryan servants working in banks or insurance companies. Then came the exclusion from almost every aspect of life, from going on holiday to the sea or the mountains, to accessing public libraries, or just having a fishing license. The attempt to remove Jews from society also extended to paper, with the elimination of Jewish names from the phone book. Meanwhile, most Italians were indifferent to the new laws. For many. The Jews were an abstract concept, and they personally didn't know any of them. After all, the Jews in Italy represented only about one thousandth of the population, and were concentrated in Rome, Milan, and Trieste. Some Italians were quite pleased to have the job opportunities left by Jewish professionals and workers. Others started to display signs in shops and bars prohibiting Jews from entering. And emphasizing the Aryan origin of the owners. Some Italians, on the other hand, tried to help the Jews in different ways. In some cases, losing their fascist party membership. This may not seem like a big deal, but without fascist membership, there is not much you can do. It was needed, for example, to work and go to school. The reaction inside the Catholic Church also varied greatly. Father Angelo Brucolieri, for example, wrote articles on the Catholic press approving the racial laws. Other influential voices joined his, making sure all the time to separate the healthy Italian discrimination from the outright Nazi racism. The Pope Pius XI was more openly critical. Criticizing first the pseudo paganism that characterized Nazi religious views, and their open racism. When Adolf Hitler visited Italy from the third to the ninth of May, nineteen thirty-eight, the Pope refused to see him. On Christmas Eve of that same year, the Pope declared that the swastika was a, a cross, which was the enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ, and then declared. That anti-Semitism was unacceptable. All of this annoyed Benito Mussolini, who put heavy pressure on the Catholic press to keep silent about the racial laws. The Pope, however, was not swayed, and started to prepare an encyclical, Humani Generis Unitas, in which he declared the unity of all humankind. Unfortunately, Pius XI. Died on the tenth of February, nineteen thirty-nine. His successor, Pius the Twelfth, put the encyclical aside, and it was only found and published years later. Pius the Twelfth has been criticised in the eyes of history for keeping silent. Some say that his cautious approach allowed him to stay in Rome while Hitler planned to abduct him if he caused trouble, and that his silence. Also extended to covering the numerous Jews and political opposers hiding out in church property, and in the Vatican itself. As with many what-ifs in history, 
it's hard to tell what the best path was. The situation of the Jewish community in Italy didn't change substantially when the country entered the war on the 10th of June 1940. They continued to be subjected to material and moral deprivation and humiliation, but no widespread physical danger or worse, loss of life. Foreign Jews in Italy, on the other hand, started to be rounded up. A first camp was opened near Cosenza in the south. Luckily, the southern position of the camp meant that it was soon liberated by the British 8th Army on the 4th of September 1943. It must be said that between 1941 and 1943, the Italian government refused to deport the Jews in the areas occupied by Italian troops, such as southern France, Yugoslavia, Greece and Tunisia. Indeed, many Jews were helped with false documents and claims. In southern France, around 50,000 Jews arrived seeking refuge. Needless to say, the Nazis were not pleased. This is not to say that all Italian citizens and troops rose to the occasion all over the place. There were many episodes of anti-Semitic acts. The real tragedy for the Italian Jews started on the 8th of September 1943. After the armistice with the Allies, the Italian Social Republic was formed, with Mussolini as its leader, but no one was under any illusion that anyone but the Nazis were in control. The Italian authorities of the Republic, at best, did nothing to stop them. At worst, they collaborated. On the 14th of November, the Manifesto of Verona declared that all Jews, Italian and non, were foreign enemies. On the 30th, instructions were given for their arrest and the confiscation of their property. Provincial camps were set up. Adolf Eichmann sent down Theodenica to deal with the Jewish question in Italy. Meanwhile, the killing had already begun. On Lake Maggiore, dozens of Jews had been rounded up and killed, their bodies then thrown in the lake. In Rome, the people of the ghetto had been rounded up, 1,259 of whom 1,030 were sent directly to Auschwitz, and 834 of them directly to the gas chambers. When Denica arrived, he went to work rounding up the people in Florence, Venice and Trieste. Out of a total of 8,566 people, 7,557 never returned to Italy. This time, at least, the local population did not stand idly by. Aside from some zealous Nazi sympathisers, they hid Jews and resistance fighters in houses and barns, feeding and helping them. The locals very clearly saw the Nazis as an occupying enemy. Despite the continued silence of Pius XII, the church played a prominent role in helping. It is estimated that in Rome alone, around 4,000 Jews found refuge in church property, including the Vatican. Some notable members of lay society were Giorgio Perlasca, initially a convinced fascist who pretended to be a Spanish diplomat to help Jews in Hungary, or Giovanni Balatucci, chief of police of Trieste, 
who was sent to Dachau for helping the Jews of his city, as was Odoardo Focherini from Carpi for his role in resisting the deportations. Speaking of Carpi again, the nearby camp of Fossoli, as we mentioned, was taken over by the Nazis and from December 43 to the spring of 44 acted as the main collection point for Jews heading north through the Brenner Pass. It was then bombed by the Allies in 44. In the end, Italy even got its own extermination camp. In Trieste, in the rice fields of San Sabba, where a crematorium was built. The camp was active from April 1944 to the end of the war. People there were killed simply using the exhaust fumes from trucks, or at times more simply clubbed to death or having their throats cut. You can still see the concentration camp at Fossoli today. Ironically, after the war, it was used to hold fascist and Nazi prisoners of war, and then later it was used as housing, but now it has been set up as a museum. The author, Primo Levi, died on the 11th of April 1987. He was suffering from depression, and he took his own life. Another Holocaust survivor, Liliana Segre, is a senator in the Italian parliament. She is now 88 years old, and a strong, determined voice against the current climate of xenophobia. As the voices of those who live through the horror fade away, I try to make sure that my children know about the camp at Fossoli and the Holocaust. Also, if I am lucky enough to have them and spend time with them, I will make sure that my grandchildren know about the Holocaust, as well as the fate of the Italians in Istria, about Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia, Syria, just to name a few. I don't want to drive them to desperation, though. After all, as the saying goes, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. C'è un tempo per ogni destino un tempo di ogni illusione Ma il tempo scandito dal sole Ci lascia senza parole Il tempo scandito dal sole Lascia senza parole il tempo scandito dal sole Ci lascia senza parole Sentire media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. Italy. 
With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.